everyone, and welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I go off on any tangents I feel like researching anything that's cool. Um, and then I tell you all the really coolest bits. Of course. Uh, I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. So um, we are back now with Mummies Part 2. That's right, the sequel. The sequel in which I, I promised you we would talk about Egyptian mummies. Good promise. And I will keep that promise. Hmm. Um, I feel like there's a caveat in coming. I mean, just a little one in that I expected it to be the main topic of conversation for this part. And it will not really be okay. the main part. It'll be like a decent part of it, but... A subplot or side well, quest. Oh, there's just so many things I ha- I felt I had to include that I came across. And I mean, like, for example, how do you learn about people eating mummies for medicine and then not talk about that on your podcast about mummies? Um, I mean, you'd have to choose not to. For example, I don't have the willpower to do that. Right. So that's why this is going to be a lot of little cool mummy things that don't necessarily all go together nicely. It's just random Except other by things the theme about of mummies. mummies. Yeah. yeah, good. Yeah, are you are you ready for that? Excited. Yeah. How about you teach me something? It sounds good. So, um, as I've stated before, I think mummy eating is a worthy uh, topic of conversation. Mm-hmm. Pretty commonplace day to day type of conversation. Um. Well, maybe not, but it could be. That's right. If we all know about it and learn about it, then we could discuss it. Well, I'm speaking from future tense when it oh, is commonplace. Oh, exactly. It's commonplace because it's it's just, you know, it's just a good thing. So, well, rich, white, European type people thought it was a good thing. Of course. In the past. So, I mean, not shocking. Right. So, in the end, the the, the behavior about eating mummies really came from a basic desire to eat humans. It wasn't, it was not at first this thing of like, we need to eat a mummy. It was like, we need to eat a human. Where could we get a human to eat? Right? And mummies were the first thought. Well, grave robbing has its risks. It does. Um, And if you have mummies, like remember... We talked about last, as a long time ago, I know, last part, mummies, part one, um, about all the mummies going missing from the Canary Islands because they were plundered yeah. by Europeans and how people just wanted to have a mummy in their, you know, Tummy. any room. Oh, I meant any rooms in their house. <laughs> mm-hmm. So then when you wanted to eat someone and you, you I mean, gra- grave robbing is a risk, but you also, maybe you just have a mummy. Maybe. So then... That's, you know, you're going to eat it. So going back though, I think I should kind of explain a little more about this whole basic desire to consume humans thing. Cause I skipped a little bit over that. Yeah. That came up pretty rapidly. And then I dismissed it pretty rapidly, True. but let's, uh, let's talk about it. I think. Right. Um, so someone, you know, looks back through history and thinks I've heard so much about ancient people eating other people. Mm-hmm. I wonder if they were onto something, medically speaking, with this cannibalism thing. Um, and that kind of led into something called medical cannibalism. I would like to clarify that right now we're in like, I don't know, 
15th, 16th century. I mean, a lot of these stories of cannibalistic older cultures were just like made up or sure. very manufactured or quite a stretch or have no evidence for. You know, you know what I mean? Like they Yeah. There's more, more archaeology in the back in the day wasn't necessarily so scientific. Right. Right. So I think it's funny that they're like, oh, my evidence is this thing we made up. <laughs> it's good enough. Right? So not that I'm not saying that no cannibalism existed. It yeah, you know, it was a thing yeah. and may still be a thing, but not very much of a thing. Yeah. The, the, which, the extent to which it was glorified or brought up in myth and story was not the extent the, to which it had happened. No, I doubt it. No. So, so since the 12th century, actually, Europeans had been eating Egyptian mummies as medicine. Okay. And then it kind of reached a peak um, in the 16th century with the introduction of this medical cannibalism. Okay. So there were people that were already eating mummies. Fair enough. I did say before that that there weren't people eating mummies to start with. There were. But they are separate from the people that medical cannibalism people who then turned to eating mummies. You know, making that number really, really go up in the 16th century. Um, and, And that's not when people decided that medical cannibalism was wrong or anything. That's just when people found uh, different ways of eating people. Okay. Yeah. So it's not, yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you more about it. Don't worry. Great. Because, yes. I would like to explain a little bit about why maybe this belief kind of took hold. Um, Culturally. Uh, Spirit was like a really important component of the health. Um, in, you know, in old time medicine, spirit is really important. So the idea was the spirit, this physical thing contained inside the body. And, you know, people that wanted to eat people thought consuming someone else's spirit would strengthen their own spirit. That was kind of their theory. And also homeopathy is popular at this point in history. Sure. But I mean, we can even just go back to the whole, you are what you eat phrase. And if they believed that there was some spirit left in them, kind of along those lines. Maybe. I don't think they had the phrase, you are what you eat back then. But I don't know where that came from. Well, I'm I'm supplanting that Mm. phrase back to them. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, (laughs) I do do want to explain what homeopathy, why that matters. Okay. Um, Homeopathic ideals like cure, like likes like things cure like things like cures like like mm-hmm. so you know like if you have a headache then you should consume walnuts because they look like brains but in this case it's if you have a headache consume some skull i or see head. the connection consume some head is the you know is the yeah okay so then there's this kind of misinformed notion that was going around that all creatures have like a set predetermined lifespan they are like of an assigned number of years given to them. Sure. And what if they died accidentally before they'd used up all their years? How could you get those years? You would eat them. Of course. Yeah. Logical. Um, and and I don't want to say that this was ever a dominant enough medical theory to like have people walking around murdering someone to eat them or like, you know, a big enough po- percentage of the population really believed that. But um it's pretty interesting, to be honest. So we're in the medieval period. And uh, and like I said, there's this stockpile of mummies floating around Europe already from all the state taking of mummies by rich people. Um, and 
as you can imagine, the flesh of mummies is really dry and crumbly. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So there's there's writings that 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 is enough for people. They've decided because of that, this is evidence. This means it's medicine. Oh, well, I mean... It's I a do. powder. It's crumbled. Yeah. It crumbles into a powder, so it is medicine. That's the evidence. That's the only evidence they needed. They're like, great. We're right. This is medicine. Yeah. Because it's a powder. From medi, meaning powdery, and sin, meaning more powder. I thought it was... Um, actually, I don't know if it's the same root as in... What is it? Da Vinci Code? Sincera? <laughs> Without wax. <laughs> right. Uh, I I don't know if that's the same route for that word because I have no idea. But well, and just let you guys know, the roots of Medi and Sin are not both powder. They're other things, but... I have no idea what they are. Okay, good. Yeah. The powder, though, they called mummia. Okay. Okay. You In that time, you'd be able to go buy some from your friendly neighborhood apothecary. Makes sense. It um, cured... I'm using air quotes, okay? It cured... Gout, epilepsy, bleeding, blood clotting, which, yeah, that makes sense. When it cures both bleeding and blood clotting, or when it cures diarrhea, but also constipation. It was a cure-all, basically. Sure. Um, (laughs) Not surprisingly. Um, It also was used as an aphrodisiac. And by painters to make a pigment, which was appropriately called mummy brown. Okay, sure. Yes. I can get behind that. Yes. Like just how there's like, you know, cadmium yellow. Yeah, there was a Mm -hmm. mummy brown. Okay. um, Made of mummies. But, you know, at some point they did start running out of mummies. Hmm. It is a limited resource. Yeah. So then, well. (laughs) Non-renewable resource. So you think. Just you wait. Just you wait. Over time, I guess. So um, the price goes up first, right? That's the first step. Price goes up. Um, at one point, the mummies were being sold at uh, five pounds British sterling per pound of flesh. So I looked this up. I looked this up. We are, if I don't know, we're in Canada, Canadian dollars. Um, we're talking something like in the year 1500. Because I don't know what time this was. We're talking 5,800, almost 5,900 dollars Canadian okay. per pound of mummy flesh. If this was more like 1600 though, we're talking like 1200 Canadian dollars. The price changed that much. That's what I figured I had to mention the two different years. Sure. It could have been any time in there that they're, refer- like they're referencing. But okay. let's just say that it was expensive. It was very, very expensive. couple grand per pound. Yeah. Only the rich. You know, this was a rich person thing. Okay. Still. So as you were kind of getting at... Uh, some people tried to create an instant mummification process to kind of counterfeit mummia. Um, they were never, of course, attempting to do it like actual mummy. They were just trying to like, how can we get it good enough so that we can pretend it's a real thing? Kind of like in the episode about Poison Squad and how like powder and or uh, pepper ended up just sometimes being sawdust or dirt. Whatever or they swept off the floor. Coal, yeah. No, literally floor sweeping. Yeah, yeah exactly. A mixture of 20... Just yeah. making fake mummy. Um, they're exactly doing that. They're counterfeiting mummy, yeah. Got it. So, basically, they tried to find a young, otherwise healthy adult that died. Um, so, usually, they would look for, like, execution victims, murder victims. Sure. Um, they slathered them in honey and herbs and bitumen. Okay. Okay. And then they would just leave them in the sun for a little while. 
and try to <laughs> try to preserve them that way. And uh, they definitely made a lot of money, but like they were, they were traveling people that moved on quickly because people would realize quickly they'd been scammed. But they sold a lot, so sure. Yeah. Okay. So, um, let's say you're sick. Let's say. Let's say. And you're um, one of these medical cannibalists. Okay. How do you consume your mummy or fresher person to heal you? Quickly. Um, this is a little off topic, but I found it interesting, so we're doing it. Okay. Um, <laughs> medical cannibalism, let's just start this out, is wild. Like, this theory is just... People were told to mix any type of human flesh in a tincture, and that would just stop bleeding, or also break up their blood clots, or also treat cough or menstrual problems. Powdered mummy was recommended, but any human flesh was, was fine, would suffice. Hmm. Um, powdered mummy could be made into a paste for scrapes and bruises. Um, and then there's lots of other body parts, fresh parts, that people used for medical cannibalism, um, like blood. I, again, I mm, I really want to talk about it, but it's not as relevant. Okay. So I'm not going to have time to explain how King Charles II of England used skulls to make his very own brand-named medication called King's Drops. And I certainly don't have time to tell you about how people used to go watch executions or bleedings just to catch some blood in a cup. I feel like you've maybe explained a decent amount of it. The, the blood increased their life force and restored their youth. Got it. Apparently. Well, way to close the loop on that one. Okay, but one more. Okay. The one other cannibalism cure I want to tell you about is um, the prescription for epilepsy. Mm-hmm. It's a very specific recipe. Um, it's a very, um, like a Pliny type of recipe. I love it. Okay. So you must get flesh from a 25, or no, 24-year-old reddish-haired man. He has to be dead but can't have died from illness, only violence. And then you needed to cut the flesh into chunks, soak them in a mixture of wine, myrrh, and aloe, and then eat it. Do you get to cook it first? or It doesn't say. Um, okay. But also the part where he has to be a 25-year-old. 24. 24-year-old. I don't know why I keep saying You almost got this recipe uh, wrong. Just oh, it's to, so tough. Reddish-haired man that has to be dead by violence. That part, to me, does sound like it's encouraging a murder. Uh, just else, a little bit. How else are you going to get... How else are you going to find this? Mm-hmm. You don't know how old a dead person is if you just come upon them. How are you going to know they're 24? I mean, you count the, the rings like a tree, right? <laughs> so. Um, what is the, the deal here? Okay. How did this get so popular? And and the thinking is that it's kind of like uh, the bitumen's fault. This is the oh, substance like always. that no, no, okay, no, just the mummy eating thing. Okay. So um, I mean, I do I do go on actually to clarify. I, I really want to say it's people's fault, of course. Ah, but there like we go. bitumen was the cause of people's insanity at this time. Um, so today, bitumen, like if I said that, what would you think of? Well, oil. Yeah, like asphalt yeah. is where I, what I would go to. Um, it's naturally occurring hydrocarbon. We get it from decomposed plants and animals. Yeah. 
Uh, it's been used in construction in the Middle East since ancient times. It's really? very, very abundant there, okay. as you might imagine, as well as yeah. other deposits of yeah. long dead decomposed plants and animals. Right. Um, so according to the book of Genesis, it was used to build the Tower of Babel. I assume they used other ingredients as well. I didn't read or the building Old materials. Testament. I mean, I haven't read the Old Testament since I was a child, but no, I didn't read it just for this episode. Okay. I only know that it was listed as a material to build the Tower of Babel. I do assume they listed other materials. Okay, this makes Cannot sense. Cannot 100% confirm. Um, bitumen was used to protect tree trunks and roots from insects and to treat uh, like a ton of different, treat is in air quotes, mm-hmm. um, ailments. Um it's viscous when heated, but then hardens when it dries. So people use it to stabilize broken bones and create poultices for rashes. And Pliny... Mm-hmm. Okay. So Pliny says, ingest bitumen with some wine to cure chronic coughs and dysentery, or combine it with vinegar to remove blood clots. Or use it to treat cataracts, toothaches, and skin diseases. Says Pliny. And we all know okay. how right Pliny always was. Yes. Uh, the Greek physician Dioscorides, oh, yes, nailed it, wrote that bitumen from the Dead Sea was the best for the medicine. All of the bitumen of the world, the Dead Sea bitumen was the best. Later, much later, because it's like close to our time, scientists actually learned that bitumen has some degree of antimicrobial and biocidal properties. All of it does. All bitumen does. Okay. But that the bitumen from the Dead Sea also contains sulfur. Sulfur is also a biocidal agent. Right. That's as far as the studies have gone. They haven't okay. actually um, proven that it's different to enough of a degree. But that's interesting that it, it may be actually that uh, Dioscorides was correct, maybe. That on the scale of good medical bitumen to bad medical bitumen... He might have been right. He was not entirely wrong with everything okay. he thought. Which, Very good. as you know, for medical times in ancient Greece. Yeah. Well, gold stars for him. Yeah. Um, then there was the 10th century Persian physician. I have no idea how to say this one. Razis. And he was the first person to use the word mummia for bitumen. And that's because mum meant wax. Okay. Which, like, because it was sticky, that's what they called it. So he named it after wax, but that was mum, and then mummia is how we got there. Okay. Um, then, then Avicenna, so he's 11th century Persian everything. He's everything. Philosopher. He was a physician. He yeah. Renaissance man kind of thing. He, yeah, he was a polymath, yeah. So he used the word mummia to specifically refer to medicinal bitumen in the 11th century and then, you know, went on from there. So it is a fact that we now call, you know, mummies, mummies. Because when the Europeans first saw the black stuff coating them, they assumed it was bitumen or mummia. Interesting. Okay. Right. So that is actually how mummies got their name. Not the other way around. Mummia is not named after mummies. Mummies are named after mummia. Okay. So then the word kind of had two meanings referring to the bitumen um, that they knew was bitumen, and also the stuff found on the ancient Egyptian mummies, which we don't know if it was actually bitumen or not. But it reminded them of bitumen. Right. Okay. Correct. So, and then bitumen started becoming scarce 
because everyone was using it for all their medical complaints. And people were like, hey, we could get some bitumen off these mummies. Hmm. Yeah. And so they scraped it off mummies. And uh, then in the 12th century, Gerard of Cremona, who translated Arabic manuscripts, um, defined mummia as the substance found in the land where bodies are buried with aloes by which the liquid of the dead mixed with the aloes is transformed and is similar to marine pitch. It's a long definition. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so then it had a third meeting mummia. So, yeah. A few more interesting facts about Egyptian mummies and bitumen is that Stephen Buckley, uh, who is a British chemical archaeologist which is a cool-sounding job. That's a, a chemical yeah. chemical archaeologist. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So in 2012, he showed bitumen does not appear as an embalming ingredient until after 1000 BCE in Egypt, when it started to be used as a cheaper substitute for the more expensive resins. Um, so it's possible some mummies, yeah, had bitumen, but some might have had other resins that they confused for. Bitumen. Sure. Um, bitumen was used for embalming for the same reason. It was valuable for medicine. It protected the cadaver's flesh from moisture, but also insects and bacteria and stuff with the antimicrobial properties, they think. Um, and then it kind of helped prevent decay. The other reason, um, bitumen might have been used for mummies, um, which is definitely not like a, a proven thing. This is just a theory that some scholars have, um, is that it was symbolic uh, because black was the color of, for the Egyptian god Osiris. Okay. Um, and it was kind of a symbol of fertility and rebirth. So some some people think maybe that was like that it was black was a you know valuable thing to them. Okay. Yeah. Um, so if you are sitting there wondering, like I kind of was, how much history we lost because people ate like so many mummies. Uh, yes. So many mummies. Um, I agree. It seems really sucky, but the more I've learned, here's the important thing. People weren't eating anyone important. Uh, okay. If that makes you feel any better. Um, actually doesn't make me feel that much better, but, but what, what happened was in the early days of mummification, they just did the pharaohs and stuff, right? Like we'll talk about that, but, but gradually everyone did it. It was for everyone. And then, you know... About 30 BCE, like the common folk are getting mummified and the Romans and Greeks in Egypt are mummified and it's, you know, this prestige symbol for them and they kind of pass it on. These more recent and cheaper made mummies were most of the ones that got eaten. Okay. So it sucks. I don't want to downplay it, but probably didn't lose any pharaohs. Well, I think what you're referring to there is the historical significance yes. of the people Yes, was probably lower in yes. the people that were eaten. Correct. Thank okay. you for translating that, yes. Okay. Let's talk about Egypt. Let's do it. Finally. Um, because I was already mentioning Egypt's first mummies, or, well, Egypt, some of Egypt's later mummies weren't necessarily royalty I would like to also say some of their first mummies were very much not royalty. Okay. Um, because, I mean, the first mummies were made by accident, right? Beta testers. Well, I think, yes, that that happens. But, like, the first 
times it's like, oh, that person died in the desert and mm-hmm. they turned into a mummy and someone found them when eventually someone thought, that's interesting. Let's do this combined with the religious aspects. Right. So um, the first mummies made by accident, probably, more than 5,000 years ago. But that is not when they started to intentionally mummify people. Um, And like I said, the religion was a really big part of it. So the ancient Egyptians believed each individual had a ka, Mm -hmm. was their life force. And that left the body after they died. Oh, I thought it was a wheel. Uh, Sorry, that's a Dark Tower reference. Keep going. (laughs) Upon their death, the ka needs to continue receiving offerings of food. And the ka would consume the food's spiritual essence. Okay. I'm not laughing. Um, but a person also had a ba, which is a set of spiritual characteristics unique to them. And that ba remains attached to the body after death and returns each night to receive new life. So the Egyptians believed a mummified body was the home for this soul or spirit, the ba. Mm-hmm. If the body's destroyed, then the spirit might be lost. It has nowhere to return. Um, mummification is like basically a, the one of the cornerstones of Egyptian religion. It was right. super important to them. Um, to, and again, to be clear, everyone was embalmed. Maybe not the full process of mummification. Maybe not get a coffin, a tomb. Sure. That, but like I said, that would come later for everyone. It was just cheaper stuff. But embalming and mummification are... are um, not the same thing, right? Right. Embalm like mummification is a type of embalming. Everyone gets this certain amount of embalming because of religion. It's important to them. Um. So basically, the earliest Egyptians bury their dead in shallow pits in the desert. Once they start to realize that they're, you know, they found a few mummies by accident, then they start to just bury their dead out in the desert and hope they all mummify. And of course, some fail, but like. You know, most probably succeed because... To at least some degree. It's a desert. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So by the early 4th dynasty, which is around 2600 BCE, then the Egyptians are finally starting to experiment with the embalming techniques. And they discover, you know, if we put this in a coffin, it's actually not going to be preserved. You know, we have to wait till it's dried out first. And so um, the technique became to mummify someone by embalming and wrapping in linen and then, you know, only then putting them in the coffin or sarcophagus. Right. And um, I'm sure the wrapping in linen is where our modern day depictions of mummies in bandages probably come oh, from. Exactly. That's what you're seeing. You're seeing linen, linen bandages. That's what they were wrapped in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do want to say that this date of 2600 BCE is kind of disputed. It may have been as long ago as 3600 BCE that they started using um, all the techniques we think of. But okay, uh, 2600 is a more accepted answer. Sure. So the earliest written account of embalming materials didn't appear until the 5th century BCE, though. So, you know, thousands of years after mummification started okay and it was the greek herodotus talking roman greek i don't know i'm gonna trust you either way Mm, greek this guy 
Greek. Um, he lists myrrh, cassia, cedar oil, gum, doesn't say of what, aromatic spices, and then by the first century BCE, Diodorus Siculus added cinnamon and Dead Sea bitumen to the list. Mm-hmm. Well, we know that that's a pretty good quality medical bitumen. It's the best. Yeah. Nothing but the best. Um, so how did mummies get made? How? Let's go there. It took 70 days in Egypt to turn someone into a mummy. Okay. Okay. So first the body is washed. Good start, I guess. Then they make a cut on the left side of the abdomen and they remove all the internal organs except for the heart. Hmm. The Egyptians believed the heart was integral to the person's being and intelligence. And so they left it in the body for them to use in the next life. Okay. Because if you took it out, they weren't them anymore. Sure. They thought it was the brain, basically. Yeah, sounds like it. Um, So priests then liquefy the corpse's brains and do the hook thing. Yeah, that's all true. Remove it through the nose. Yeah. The brain wasn't considered to be important. So, you know, they just threw it away. Um, The body and the internal organs then are packed with natron salt for 40 days to remove all the moisture. I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent here. Okay. Natron. Because I was curious about this, you see. Um, It's a naturally occurring salt. It was used by the ancient Bronze Age societies in, like, the Mediterranean area, mostly the east. They use it for tons of things. So, um, if you like to hear it this way, Na2CO3 is what we're talking about here. Sure. Um, Not baking, not sodium bicarbonate. We're not talking about baking soda, but we're close. It is a compound of soda ash and baking soda. Um, it was harvested from, like, the dry saline lake beds in ancient Egypt. Okay. Um, I mean, from other places, too, but that's where they harvested it from. And they used it, like, cleaning agent for, you know, bodies and houses, preserving meats, making glass. Things that I don't think should all be the same. Hmm. Uh, fair enough. Things that you eat aren't usually the same things that you, you do, like, clean with and make glass with. But, you know, okay. you never know. We know how much boric acid they yeah. put in food. I was going to say, I think we can probably so, find some yeah. interesting parallels. So, nature can be um, created out of plants that grow in salt marshes. Like, if they burn the plants and take the ash and mix it with soda lime, then you created natron. Okay. That's not necessarily naturally occurring, but you can create it that way. Um, but there's a big, uh, natural deposit that the Egyptians mainly use for their mummy making at a place called Wadi Natron. Natron, obviously, from the salt. Sure. It's just northwest, just northwest of Cairo. Okay. Another important natural deposit, um, was at Shalastra in the Macedonian region of Greece, and that's where they mostly got the natron for glass making. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. So that's my tangent. Um... We're on dried organs now. We have dried organs. We do. Dried body, dried organs. They wrapped the dried organs in linen before they placed them in the canopic jars. Mm-hmm. The lid of each jar was shaped to represent one of Horus's four sons. Okay. This is the first I was hearing of this, so I went off on another tangent. Of course. Yep. Who are Horus's four sons? Okay. There's a guy called Happy, who protects the lungs. Okay. 
Did they put the lungs in that jar? That's what I mean, yes. Okay, good. But that's, I'm trying to, I was trying to illustrate that that's how they felt about this arrangement. I see. That he was protecting the lungs. That's, that's what the jars were like. Okay. Um, Imseti protects the liver. Duamutef, the stomach. And Quebesenuef, the intestines. Man, you really went in order of difficulty of saying those names. <laughs> right? Okay, great. Started off easy and then, oh man. Uh, I have no idea if I said that last one right. Words that start with a Q or... Sometimes tough for us English folk. Yeah. yeah. So if you see the jars, like if you saw canopic jars, you would notice that they're mostly, they're carved with different heads. We don't always see that well represented because things erode over time. Yeah, sure. Um, But they were supposedly all carved like this. So happy. So the, the lung guy had a baboon head. Okay. The human head guy is Mseti for the liver. Okay. The jackal head is Duamutef, and the falcon head is Quebesenuef. Okay. So that's that tangent done too. Great. Um, so the body is rubbed with oil. The body cavity is stuffed with sawdust and rags, maybe mm-hmm. some herbs a little bit. Yeah. Uh, incisions are all sealed up with wax. Okay. And then the next 15 to 20 days are spent wrapping the mummy. They took hundreds of yards of linen per mummy. Um, it was about really? it was about twenty layers of bandage each. But um, it was uh, some like most things. Eventually, the cheaper mummies didn't have as many layers. It was another status thing. Like you know, makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So the priests were the ones doing this. They were winding these long strips of linen around the body. They would wrap like each finger and toe separately and then the entire hand together. So like underneath the hand, the fingers would be wrapped. Okay. Um, Yeah. That's a lot of dedicated detail. And then they would put things within the mummy, like not inside the body, but between the the layers of linen. So they do a few layers and then put, let's say like an amulet or magical words written on some of the linen strips. Okay. Um, stuff like that. Um, a mask on their face. Well, of their face a little bit. Between the layers of the head bandages. Sure. Yeah, so basically they're doing all of this, you know, to protect the dead, see them to the next life, all that stuff, right? Right. Um, at several stages, they, like, recoded it with warm resin and then kept wrapping. So, yeah, it was a very intense process. Um so the death mask, if it doesn't go between the layers of the bandage, would then complete the mummy on top of the bandages. Sure. One of those things. Of course, you know, they put it in a shroud. They they secure the shroud with linen strips. And then they throw it in the sarcophagus. Or lightly placed. Probably respectfully. Okay. I'm just, you know, colloquially saying that. Sure. Um, they put the sarcophagus in its tomb. And then they put all the other stuff in the tomb. Something I find super interesting about the tomb, I mean, like everyone knows the wealth and treasure and stuff like that. Sure. But you're supposed to put paintings or models of food. And that goes all the way back to that Ka life force that has to eat the food's spiritual essence. So you like make models of these things. Sure. And, and that way they would last because real food would perish. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it has something to sustain it. The of course. Call. Yeah. So, as part of the funeral, 
Priests perform special religious rites at the entrance to the tomb. Um, the most important part of the ceremony was called the opening of the mouth. The priest touched various parts of the mummy with a special instrument to open those parts of the body to the senses enjoyed in life and needed in the afterlife. Okay. So by touching the, the whatever it was, the instrument to the mouth, the dead person can now speak and eat. He is ready for his journey to the afterlife. I had never heard about this, like, no, funeral, ceremony, anything about that. So that was pretty cool, too. Um, mummification in Egypt ends around 300 CE. Oh, kind of everywhere, but, you know. Um, if we're just including Egypt here, we're saying it went on for three to 4,000 years, depending on which of those start dates we're going with. But it's a long that time. is a, just a hugely long period of time when you think about it, right? Mm-hmm. When you think about the fact that we're only in the second millennia <laughs> of the of, current of era the, of counting yeah, yeah so just wow um but the search for mummies more mummies definitely isn't over of course some archaeologists think that there is a door to a second hidden tomb in king tut's tomb that could have the remains of nefertiti his mother-in-law okay but most people think he's wrong Oh, so here's That's a story. No fun. Here's the story. No, it's it's fun at the end. Okay, great. It's Let's get there. Slightly interesting. I don't know. Between slightly interesting and fun, somewhere between there. Somewhere there. So the Egyptian Ministry of Antiquities conducted a radar survey of Tutankhamun's. Oh God, I'm not gonna say Tut. Tutankhamun's. Yeah. Tutankhamun. Yeah, yeah. His tomb in November 2015 to address okay. this, you know, claim that there is a hidden hidden tomb. They didn't find any secret tombs. Oh. <laughs> Most archaeologists have grown pretty skeptical of the claim. And then in 2018, um, Polytechnic University of Turin came and did a months-long geophysics study um, to rule out hidden rooms. And yeah, so they're pretty sure that's not that's not true. So double evidence against it. That's no fun. Yeah. So, but where is Nefertiti is the thing. Okay. How have we still not found Nefertiti? Is the she is the most famous missing mummy? Okay. Arguably. Are we certain that she became a mummy? I think so. Okay. They seem pretty certain. Okay. It would be a pretty big deal not to be a mummy, especially as royalty. Uh, okay. Okay. Got it. So here we go. On December 9th, twenty twenty one, officials officially resume hunting for Nefertiti's mummy. Egypt's archaeological mission is led by the famed Egyptologist and former antiquities minister Zahi Hawass. Okay. I don't know who that is either, but just saying. So, okay. So they're looking for her tomb in the West Bank of Luxor. Um, he believes Nefertiti's resting in the Valley of the Kings in the West Bank of Luxor. And an Egyptian team has been formed to search for and excavate the tomb. So what I can't get over, though, is that they started, well, they formed the team um, in 2017. And it's an entirely Egyptian mission. And this is the first time ever that Egypt has led a mission, an excavation at an archaeological site at the Valley of Kings. Uh, there's been archaeology before there. 
only foreign foreign led excavation and archaeology at Egypt's arguably most important. Yeah, colonialism and imperialism is pretty pretty terrible. Like that's so appalling to me. (laughs) Like, are you are you kidding me? I couldn't believe it when I learned about that. So I mean, that's exciting. I mean, it's terrible to learn about, but like, finally, sure. Yeah. So. They believe Nefertiti is buried in the Western Valley next to the tomb of King Amenhotep III. Sure. I doesn't really um huh. I'm not I'm not sure they present much of the evidence because they don't really say because of this reason. I'm sure they have evidence, but I can't tell you why they think that. Um so Hawass says there's lots of undiscovered secrets about ancient Egypt in the area between King Amenhotep III's tomb and King, I don't even know, Av's. Well, locating Nefertiti's tomb would be like, you know, the most important discovery in a very, very long time. Um, discovery of the century, he thinks. But... Okay. Yeah, what he did say is that in Luxor, there is evidence that antiquities... Um, matching King Tut <laughs> mm-hmm. are also over there. So like, why would they be over there if, you know, it wasn't someone close to him? Maybe um, he was the son of Ankenaten. That was Nefertiti's husband. Right. So, um, I don't know. They don't seem super hopeful, though. This other Egyptologist says he doubts they'll find the mummy and the original tomb of Nefertiti. But most notably he thinks it's it's not because she was never there maybe she was there but she wouldn't be anymore or maybe she was never there everything was so political back in the day you see with the whole woman yeah and the whole yeah and the priests didn't like her. the priests of amun ra didn't like her after akhenaten um said everyone should worship the god aten and she supported him so the priest didn't like her um, and who is controlling what happens to her after she's dead, right? Like the priests. The priests yeah. Um, so, you know, that is when they abandoned, they, the royal couple, abandoned Thebes. And they built their new capital in Amarna. So maybe she would be over there. But the priests certainly wouldn't have let her be over in Luxor where they, you know, ran away from. And so there is different opinions on this. Right. Based on seemingly little evidence. It doesn't seem like we're sure. very close to finding Nefertiti is what I'm trying to say. Um, but speaking of King Tut, let's get into something I think I mentioned in the introduction of part one, which is what is up with the whole mummy's curse thing. Let's go there. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know. Do you? What do you think? Do you think that's a real thing? No. Not like real, like it's really a curse. But it was that is that really, you know, honestly what's in mummy's tombs? Are there curses written on the walls? Do you think do you, do like you believe attempted that's real? curses? Like the mythology Cur- behind there being curses in mummy's tombs? Right. That's my question oh, to you. I mean, I have a hard time saying. I wouldn't be surprised if there is like a mythology around that that's been held for a long time, sure. Okay. Well the mummy's curse first came into world knowledge um, when King Tut's tomb is found. Okay. In the Valley of Kings, Luxor, Egypt. The place we just came from. In 1922. So Howard Carter opened a little hole 
looked inside the tomb, saw the treasures, and everyone knew about it. This is when everyone started to learn about ancient Egypt. This okay. is a big this is a big event in history. Um, it made, you know, headlines all over the place. Everyone heard about it, and it was uh sensational. Right. And on this expedition, someone dies. Right. Well, just after actually. The sponsor of the expedition. One Lord Carnarvon. Mm. Did he so, eat a lot of meat? <laughs> so, this whole curse rumor gets started, and then the guy that paid for the excavation drops dead, and now it's like a, a fact, right? Of course. But in reality, he died of blood poisoning. And only... Blood sick- poisoning related to curses, though. Clearly. And only six of the 26 people that were present when the tomb was opened died even within a decade of opening it. So, mm. mummy's curse, not really. Not really an issue. But, one second. Um, Did a dozen of the dozen people die? A dozen of the dozen? What? Did what? all the people die eventually? Um, This was 1923, so I'm going with Yes. Hmm. See? In fact, curse proven. Howard Carter, the guy that opened the tomb, which is why I said that earlier, he died in 1939. Okay. So he lived for, you know, another 16 years after opening the tomb. Don't, doesn't sound too cursed to me, but, you know. Fair enough. Um, so someone, I don't. I don't know how reputable this guy is, but he's an Egyptologist named Dominic Montserrat. And he did this like big search of the literature and he concluded that this mummy's curse began with a strange striptease in 19th century London. This is odd, I know. Okay. You're going to have to connect so, some dots for me. I <laughs> Quote, my work shows quite clearly that the mummy's curse concept predates Carnarvon's Tutankhamen, how do you say it? Tutankhamen? Oh, I did it. Okay. Yeah. Discovery at his death by a hundred years. Okay. Montserrat, you know, that's what that's what he claims. Um, he said it was a lively stage show in which real Egyptian mummies were unwrapped live on stage. Okay. Which inspired a few writers, there was one, and then there was a few others, to start writing tales of mummy's revenge for this horrible indignity of being stripped on stage for an audience, which, like, obviously knowing how important the Egyptians found this practice was, you know, I get why like mummy revenge like, tales yeah, have sure. sprung up from it. Um, so an author who you may have heard of called Louisa May Alcott um, wrote a book that wasn't very well known called Lost in a Pyramid or The Mummy's Curse. And if you don't know why that name sounds familiar, it's because she also wrote a very popular book series called Little Women. Mm, Yes. But it's very old. Okay. And she wrote this book a long time. I'm trying trying to say is she's an older author. She wrote this book before um, this uh, King Tut's, you know, tomb. So, you know, this is just evidence that it was a concept before, you know. Um, it's not true or, or is it, you know, like it, it definitely didn't originate in King Tut's tomb, but there are some Egyptologists that think the curse concept like did exist in Egypt as like a primitive security system. Sure. She thinks that that's not far-fetched. 
Um, so mastaba were early like non-pyramid tombs. And she said that some mastaba walls in Giza and Saqqara were inscribed with curses meant to terrify those who would desecrate or rob them. Um, she said that they tend to threaten um, people with divine retribution, but also like things like you will die by crocodiles, lions, scorpions, or snakes. Okay. So not necessarily some kind of deep curse on your soul, no, but just, just that like could happen. go slip in a lake near a crocodile, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so we've gone over the old mummies. We have. Let's wrap things up by talking about hmm. making new mummies. I see what you did there. <laughs> yeah, you like that one? Yeah, very good. Yeah. Keep going. So, um, body donation. Okay. Body donation is a path some may choose to take. Yes. In which you donate your body to several different endeavors. Um... There was a man named Alan Billis who signed up to donate his body to science when he learned he had terminal lung cancer. So this was in 2008 in England. And he did it because there was an advertisement seeking a volunteer to be mummified using ancient Egyptian techniques. Okay, kind of cool. Alan Billis was the only one who responded to the advertisement. Yeah, I mean, that's a tough advertisement to fill. Uh, good. So, he actually, they made a uh, documentary called Mummifying Alan, BBC Channel 4. Mm, not even BBC 1. No, not even close. Wow. 2011, BBC Channel 4 documentary, Mummifying Alan, Egypt's Last Secret. Oh. So, basically, Mr. Stephen Buckley, who we talked about because he is a archaeological chemist... Um, he just, he was really sure that the only way he could know everything about Egyptian mummy was by trying to make an Egyptian mummy. Sure. Like how else? He was trying to practice on pigs. He wanted to have one very serious attempt at this, you know, he's doing everything he could. Um, so Alan Billis dies in January, 2011. It took Stephen Buckley and his team until August of 2011 to completely mummify him. And, but they were successful. Um, I mean, I'm telling a story. Okay. Just the way you said it, I was... Okay. I thought there was a punchline ready to go. No, keep going. <laughs> okay. Um, so, I'm just, I'm just gonna... I'm just gonna tell my story the way I was telling it before you interrupted sure. me. Sure. Okay? That was very rude. <laughs> so, Stephen Buckley. He was trying to emulate a specific period of mummification because, obviously, even though we don't have a lot of information, things were slightly different at all times. Mm -hmm. um, so he believed the most perfect or close to perfect stage of mummification was during the 18th dynasty. So that's between 1550 and 1292 BCE. Okay. So this was, this was during the period King Tut reigned. Um, so they actually ended up calling him Tootin Allen for hmm. the last years of his life because sure. of this. Um, so basically he wanted, Buckley wanted to use the Pharaoh techniques from the 18th dynasty on Alan Billis. So they first removed his organs through the abdomen. They left his heart and brain. Um, same thing as before because of the necessary for the afterlife. 
Um, but Stephen Buckley has said that research showed some of Egypt's best preserved mummies still had a brain. So they just left it in place. Okay. So that's new to me. Um, they sterilized the body cavity um, with alcohol instead of the palm wine they used to use. Just because, you know, we have better sterilizing techniques now and this is just... Sure. Probably a better idea. You know what I mean? Someone doing their body shouldn't let them rot, right? Yeah. So they, you know, did the same type of thing, lining the cavity with like linen, spices, myrrh, sawdust, sealed it with beeswax, all that stuff. Um, So what Buckley wanted to prove was that even though it was counterintuitive, he thought for sure in the 18th dynasty that the embalmers would have soaked the body in a natron solution, not put dry natron on it. And people were like, no, they're trying to dry it out. They're not going to, like, put it in salt water, basically. Right. Okay. Um, but Stephen Buckley was just... Uh, yeah, he was convinced that's what they would do. So, for Alan Billis, he combines sodium carbonate and sodium bicarbonate, sodium chloride, and sodium sulfate... So the theory was that this would stop bacterial growth by raising the pH levels and inhibit enzymes, bacteria, and that the water would retain the body's form better. Okay. Right. Um, so I guess this experiment is kind of a good, he was hoping would be a good pro- proof of his theories. Um, so by the beginning of, you know, this project... He had discovered salt crystals in the x-rays of the soft tissue of old mummies. And that is why he said he chose solution over. That makes sense. That makes sense, right? Yeah. Yes. Because the you drying out. Yes. Well, no, just the like the evaporation would leave salt behind that would naturally grow. Whereas if it was dry the whole time, you would have like crumbled salt. You wouldn't have like new crystal formation, basically. Okay. That's kind of what I thought, but I definitely didn't have the words. Thank you. Um, so he thought that water maybe was used symbolically, like um, rebirth, basically. Okay. Um, so it did help prove his theory. Good. They, yeah, successfully mummified Alan Billis. It turned out. Just like, you know, ancient mummies. Um, they have had a lot of volunteers. I mean, relatively a lot. I'm assuming you're talking like once the documentary came out. Yes. Okay. Um, about donating their body for mummification. Um, and I'm, I'm by a lot, I mean like dozens of people. To me, dozens sure. is a lot to, for this type Up of thing. Up from one to dozens. That's a exactly. big percentage increase. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was cool, but Stephen Buckley is not the only one making mummies. Salt Lake City, Utah is where we go next. Really? Okay. Let's go there. Uh Uh-huh. So that's the home to a lot of... Salt. Oh, I was trying to find a polite way to say crazy companies headquarters. That too. People are crazy there. Okay. Coincidence with salt? A lot of MLMs. Um, A place called Sumum, which is a, quote, religious nonprofit and licensed funeral home. Okay, sure. I can wrap my head around all those things. 
Yeah. So it was founded by Claude Noel, who would later go on to name himself, rename himself Corky Raw. So I'm trying to understand if that was an upgrade or not, but I'll think that one through. You keep going. So he founds the religion Sumum in 1975 after he claims to be visited by advanced beings, quote. Okay. Uh-huh. So he said, this encounter helped me form the tenets of Sumum, and it kind of draws some inspiration from ancient Egyptian beliefs. So Sumum promotes mummification as their religion, and they offer mummification services for around 67000 U.S. dollars. Okay. I might see a... Uh business idea percolating here more so than a religious one in this case, but that's fine. Keep going. Are you trying to suggest that this is the sole religion motivated by money or that that is an uncommon trait of religion? Um, no, no comments whatsoever. Oh, sorry. Right. There's no salt comment. there at Salt Lake city. No comment. So Sumum is as far as we know, the only modern mummification facility on the planet. Okay. Um, they're calling themselves, you know, mummification experts. Their headquarters is not at all, shockingly, the shape of a... Tomb? Pyramid. Well, yes. I guess it's the same thing in Egyptian periods. Egyptian yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, after Michael Jackson dies in 2009, a private unmarked helicopter lands near this pyramid and this big rumor gets started that they mummify michael jackson okay we know that that doesn't happen i mean right we know that that's not what happened they denied doing it but they got a lot of press sure but this has really um taken off yeah yeah Yeah. so their theory is that they keep trying to keep the body as natural as possible do as little damage so that your soul can go to the next world um the (laughs) first Sorry. When when Corky Raw, who I, I can totally say his name without giggling, dies, um, his friend joins this team. Ron Timu comes and mummifies him. His first mummification. He's a funeral director. He takes over this religion. Because okay. that's what you qualifies you to be a religious leader, is that you were a funeral director before. Yeah. Well, why not? That's okay. Yeah. So, Corky Raw's body, by the way, rests for hopefully eternity inside a golden mama form decorated with a very realistic depiction of his face. Okay. Yeah, I'm thinking a mama form is a sarcophagus, but I forgot to look that one up. Sure. Yeah. Okay, so they try to keep their process very secret because, you know. Trade secrets money. and, yeah. Um, so they say it's loosely based on Egyptian techniques. That's all they'll really tell us. Um, they will reveal that it is like the technique used by Stephen Buckley's team. They do use a solution to soak the body in. Um, They soak the body for up to six months, though. And they use a different embalming solution that they claim better preserves DNA. Oh, okay. Yeah. That suggests that's important to them. Understood. They claim that their aim is to seal moisture in and preserve as much as possible. 
One of their proudest achievements is that they've recently been able to perfectly preserve people's eyeballs. That's important. Well, okay. Two reasons it's important. One, because that is one of the most recognizable parts of a human person. Sure, I, I can is see their that, eyes. yeah. Right. Without your eyes, you don't look like you. True. Right. There are other parts like that, but you know what I mean. I do. Um, and the second thing is that your eyes are water, right? Like, they're, they're just Almost like a ball entirely. of water. Yeah. So, in general, it's a big thing in mortuary chemistry of how to preserve the eyes. Okay. Um, you know, they go soft real quickly. So whatever they've done, they've found a way to somehow preserve the eyeballs almost perfectly, they say. Okay. And that's their claim to fame. So because of the DNA thing, I was wondering, like you probably were, are they like preserving people for, you know, cloning in the future or reanimation? Like what is their, what is the aim here? Um... And they claim it's not about that at all. Oh. And it would be a happy coincidence, maybe, if for some reason you could, like, do something in the future with this DNA. But that's not the reason they do it at all. Okay. It's a religion. Okay. Yeah. It's a religion. Okay. I still... Do you have questions? Because I can't I don't know. Them. <laughs> I don't know if I do. I, just... I have so many. I, I feel just... like there's more to the story than that. That's I all. I did it. I mean, how much, you know, time do you have? Because I well, don't not have much any now. more right yeah, now. Yeah, right. Exactly. Is the problem. Okay. I'm kind of just telling you the bear. I just have to say it. How do you how do you do a podcast on mummies and then not talk about a funeral home that makes people into mummies? I mean, I'm sorry. It's true. A religion it was slash funeral home. Well, it's okay. I mean, funeral home. I think is slash the right descriptor religion. in this case. It's so it's weird that they've decided. Anyways. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, as I just said, we're out of time um, for this final mummy episode. There will not be a part three. Mm. I don't know what the next episode is. But we'll find out but on the next episode. It might be about dragons. Okay. Very that's a big, good. That's a, big, that's a big thing to say, but I'm going to say it. It's, I'm going to make up my mind right now. Wow. Comparative mythology about dragons. Crazy. Get ready. Okay. So thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Teach Me Something. Once again, I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new.